Hello and welcome to Such Sights to See, the podcast about journeying through cinema with my good friend. I'm your host, Patrick, and with me here is the Oni Tamiya to my Jalmari Hellander, Eric. Hello. Someday I will understand one of your references, but today is not this day, as Aragorn would say. <laughs> this one you, you, you would get if you saw the picture of Oni Tamiya. He's the kid from Big Game. Oh, and that director has put him in pretty much every movie of his. Well, you should have said Samuel L. Jackson to whoever that was, and maybe I would have had a, a, a fighter's chance. Yeah, well, uh, that's the problem, though. Samuel Jackson was only in one movie. So you and I, we go way back. We've been, you know, in so many things together. Yes, like only in death and other things. Yes, yes. We won't talk about the short films that we made when we were younger. It would be less embarrassing if we were like 15 or something, but we were clearly much older. <laughs> yes, like 19 or 20. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, they're on YouTube. For anyone who's curious, hit us up and we will uh, share the links. But uh, we're not here to talk about those movies. We're here to talk about much better movies. Hopefully. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, you know, we did watch the same movie together this week, but before we get to that, let's talk about some other things. I saw some cool stuff that I think you might appreciate. One, I'm pretty sure you saw, inspired by the release of Prey, we watched Predators. Oh, I remember really liking that, but it's been a couple of years since I saw it. That's the 2010 movie, right? Not the yep, one in between. Correct. 2010, Nimrod Antal is the director. What a great and name. I know, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, this is this movie's right up my alley. It is kind of got that people trapped in a place vibe where you have a group of uh, really tough uh, people getting airdropped onto this alien planet in some sort of predator game reserve. The toughest of all of them is Adrian Brody. <laughs> which he would not have thought uh, he would be. But uh, he does a good job playing the, the tough mercenary guy. And I really just like the interaction of all the characters as they're getting picked off one by one and uh, trying to survive and escape this alien planet. It's got a good vibe, moves pretty fast. Um, yeah, it's just like a really solid B movie. Really enjoy it. Yeah, it's been a very long time since I saw that, but I remember when it came out, it was my favorite sequel Predator to that uh, Predator film to that point, because at that point there was uh, Predator 2, which I thought was ridiculous on its face, having <laughs> Danny Glover be able to beat a Predator that Arnold Schwarzenegger, the superhuman, could barely beat. You've got the, right. you know, over the hill cop kind of walking, working his way through the streets of L.A. Uh, I was just like, that's no, I'm sorry. Um, I know. Although I would like to see it again because I've I've heard it's actually aged pretty well. And then there were those Predator terrible two? Alien wow. versus Predator movies, which I not barely remember. Yeah, I saw them when they had come out because I was really excited. I read a script online, which at the time was the height of awesomeness, finding these unreleased scripts online. Mm-hmm. But this was either a, a very rough draft or like a fan made script that had nothing to do. And I still say was way better than what they came out with. Oh, really? <laughs> um, and then there was this, which was like a refreshingly good take. And then they kind of reverted when Shane Black wrote the movie that came out, I want to say about five years ago, that was really terrible um, before, you know, coming back to Prey, which was also excellent. 
Yeah, I missed the Predator. I was I was actually listening to another podcast and they were talking about the current trend of of naming sequels just the something. You got the Batman, the Suicide Squad, the Predator. And I, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, it's really confusing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had somebody um, at the library ask for Suicide Squad and I got them the Suicide Squad and they were not happy about it. And I was like, but mm. I gave you the better one. <laughs> right. Enjoy this one. It's actually good. <laughs> oh, man. So um, I did get to go to the theater uh, the past two weeks. It was kind of busy, but I did get to see the new um, movie by, what's his name? George Miller. Oh. 3,000 Years of Longing. And it's a mess, but it is awesome. Uh, so 3,000 Years of Longing stars Tilda Swinton as um, this British uh, professor, doctorate professor who is obsessed with stories and how stories you know, contain our history. And she winds up in the possession of a genie played by Idris Elba. And you, the movie is basically those two having their conversation about, you know, what the next steps are in regards to wishes, but it flashes back to really inventive stories from Idris Elba's genie past. And that was the joy of the movie, watching these like Arabian Nights tales unfold. And there's a, there's a bunch of them. And yeah, it, it's just full of cool visuals, full of cool ideas and really gets that sort of Shahrazade vibe, which I like. So that was nice. The problem is it has a really wonky third act where it was kind of a movie in search of a, a thematic ending maybe. And I did not like the, how it wrapped up, but everything up till then was really great. Cool. I'm, I'm really interested in seeing that one. I don't know if I'll actually make it to the theater for it. Mm-hmm. But it looked like it could be fun. Yeah, I've always admired George Miller's imagination. I went back and watched the Mad Max films fairly recently. And the second and third one are just full of crazy imagery and crazy ideas. And it's just like every five seconds, something weird is on screen. <laughs> and I really like that. And that's kind of how I felt about this. Not not as you know crazy as young George Miller or... Uh, Fury Road, but it definitely has some really cool touches that I liked. Awesome. So did you see anything? I saw one thing that I'd like to talk about. Um, I run a a book club at the library that is actually a movie and book club where we read the idea is to read a book and then we watch the adaptation of it um, and discuss. And so far, I think I'm the only one who's actually read the books. But this (laughs) week's or month's book was The Lovely Bones by Alice Siebold, oh, uh, which yeah. is the story of Susie Salmon. I'm wondering if you saw this because of who the director is, which I had no idea who the director was until it popped up on the screen at the end, and I was shocked oh. and dismayed. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did see it for that reason. But go yes, ahead. It, because it was made by Peter Jackson, who has made some of the best adaptations in the history of the world. I'm talking about, obviously, The Hobbit, no, I'm kidding. They're talking about <laughs> the Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit was also straight trash yes. um, for the most part. <laughs> and I would have to say that the Lovely Bones, I did not enjoy the book. 
Uh, so not a good start. But I said, well, you know, the movie looks like it's interesting anyway. It was not. It also was not good. Despite a powerhouse cast, which was crazy to me, this is Saoirse Ronan uh, is the main character. First of all, it's a book about uh, the story of Susie Salmon, and she's a teenage girl who was brutally raped and murdered by a neighbor in the 70s. Um, kind of like the origin time of, I guess, the the face on the milk crate kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of sort of, from what I understand, semi-autobiographical. Obviously, Alice Sugibull didn't die, but she did experience uh, a sexual assault in her youth. Oh. Um, and there was a foreword to the book where she talks about how she was always curious about those faces on the milk cartons. And there was like this rash of girls who disappeared. And she asked her mom, you know, what, what happened to these women? And her mom was kind of cagey in her response. Uh, so she wrote this book eventually, um, when she got older to kind of cope with her own sexual assault and things. As I said, it's an adaptation, um, the rest of the movie after she gets raped is Susie basically watching her family grapple with her death and all of the fallout that happens. I would say Susie is the main character in the book. I'm not sure really who the main character in the movie is because it kind of flashes back between Susie, who's in this in-between fantastic kind of purgatory area before right, moving yeah. on to heaven, and she can't move on because she's been murdered. Um, really cool visuals I thought there, but also kind of pointless. And I hate in the book as well, how she's just kind of this passive, maybe main character who just kind of sits there watching everything happen. There's no real agency. She doesn't really appear to try to help her family solve the crime or even particularly care about it. Her big goal uh, is to kiss the boy who she never kissed. And at one point in the movie, I oh, guess spoilers, uh, she takes over the body of this kind of vaguely psychic girl um, who it's implied can see dead people and, you know, kisses the boy and then moves on to heaven. Uh, it was just a very, very odd choice of me. The whole, the whole thing. Um, and I don't understand adaptations that kind of needlessly change things. Uh, I think, and this is a good example of it in, in the movie, her dad, who was played by Mark Wahlberg, crazy. Oh, I forgot uh, about that. Yeah. So who else is in this cast? Cause I, I kept, people just kept showing up. Susan so Sarandon, right? Yeah. Susan Sarandon plays the crazy grandma. Um, Rachel Vice is her daughter. Oh, Stanley Tucci is the murderer. Yeah, and uh, there's one other guy, Michael Imperioli, who is in The Sopranos, is kind of the detective. Um, but if you're making an adaptation, uh, obviously you have to change things, you know, because you're you're adapting. Adap wow, I can't even speak words today. You're adapting a book that is often, you know, hundreds of pages long, and you have to break it down to about an hour and a half to maybe two and a half hours. Um, but when you do things like in this movie where, for whatever reason, they made the choice to have the dad kind of become a conspiracy theorist. And in the book, he was immediately obsessed with this creepy neighbor who makes dollhouses as the killer. And he kept bugging the cops to like, hey, bust this guy. It's this guy. I don't know why, but I know it's this guy. And he's right. Yeah. In in the movie he's like maybe it's the janitor maybe it's this guy maybe it's that guy and you save no time 
you're not saving time. You're not saving anything or adding a new dimension. You're just like changing this story needlessly to something less interesting and something that makes less sense. So if you're making, making an adaptation, don't do that. <laughs> okay. Good advice. Yeah. Um, otherwise it was just very blah. Yeah. I really did not like it when I first saw it. I do remember it had some cool Peter Jackson touches. Like when the action scenes were happening, he's, he's good at structuring an action scene. I remember the chase, uh, where the sister is in in the bad guy's house and she's trying to find evidence or something and she almost gets caught. I remember that was a good scene. Yeah, I remember there were moments um, in that kind of purgatory in between area that were visually stunning and beautiful, but ultimately there was no point to them. Like it was just mm-hmm. like, oh, if that looks cool, I guess she's in a gazebo in the middle of you know, a lake or whatever, watching her family. I don't know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So do you think, uh, when did this come out? Do you think it had anything to do with, uh, with the uh, readily available CGI where Peter Jackson was just like having a field day because he can finally create anything he wanted? <laughs> I mean, maybe, but he also... I didn't really feel like it was that much advanced over some of the things he did in Lord of the Rings about almost a decade prior. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, well, disappointment for Peter Jackson. Um, He honestly, I haven't seen a movie of his I liked since King Kong. Yeah. Yeah, He's in a a weird career. Yeah. Yeah, really, he always said he wanted to go back and make like some low-budget horror movies. So I'd love him, for him to do that again. We shall see. Instead, he's making Beatles documentaries. Yeah, well. <laughs> All right, well, that kind of leads into the next movie I wanted to talk about, which also had needless CGI. Mm. It's from Hong Kong. So Close from 2002, directed by Corey Yuen is a martial arts female assassin movie starring Shuki, who uh, martial arts and fans may recognize. And she um, she's just a cool female assassin killing businessmen for money. And uh, it is filled with this like early 2000s aesthetic where it's obvious CGI. People are flying around and... Uh, her hair is always like blowing in the wind, even when she's indoors and I don't know, just like goofy stuff like that. There's a scene where she like jumps onto the ceiling and stabs her heels into the ceiling and then does like a matrix twirl while broken glass is raining down everywhere. It's, you know, there's cool, cool, cool ideas, but it is not a great movie, but it does scratch that like goofy B movie martial arts itch. So if, if you're up for that, it's called So Close. I'm always up for that. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about one more before we get to our main topic. I thought you said it was a light movie week. Yeah. <laughs> I, it is. It is. It's two weeks and I only watched one, two, three, four, five, six movies. That's, you know. I have no comment. <laughs> all right well guess how many tv shows i watched zero <laughs> yeah yeah You're missing out man 
I know. Well, you're missing out on, you know, so close. And the next movie I'm going to talk about, who is directed by somebody I know you know, Werner Herzog. Uh, this is one of his early movies from 1974 called The Enigma of Caspar Hauser. I don't even the, understand the title itself is an enigma. The German title is much better. It's uh, Every Man for Himself and God Against All. It's a shame that they translated it to the enigma of Caspar Hauser. So Caspar Hauser is a, is a real person who is in the 1800s was found in the middle of the town, didn't know how to speak, could barely function as a human, just some like 20, 30 year old guy. And eventually they found out he had a mysterious letter on him that said that he was in a basement for his whole life and was only taught like certain words and never saw another human and then was released and someone please take care of him. That's basically <laughs> what this, what happened to this guy. And there was all these like theories at the time that he was maybe like a, a bastard Royal child who was, you know, shuttled off or, or you know, things like that, that he's really the son of a prince. And, but um, he had an interesting life. He was taken, uh, he kind of, was taken in by a doctor who taught him how to kind of function as a human in society, taught him how to talk and write and things like that. But he still has this, at least in the movie, still has this like childlike attitude of how he experiences the world, which was really interesting. I think that's what Herzog was going for, trying to show like what, how would adult an adult experience things that they've never experienced before, like for the first time, like just, you know, going to a dinner party, for example, you know, you're an adult, you have the intelligence of an adult by all uh, accounts. Casper Hauser was an intelligent guy. He just had a horrible, weird upbringing. Mm -hmm. Anyway. uh, So it shows his life and his untimely death um, where he was stabbed by somebody and died. And the movie implies that was kind of part of his history, the the stabbing. But it's not really about that. It's really just about this this like how this person sees the world. Really good movie. But what I really liked about it was that Herzog is a really good director back in the day before he became like a meme. Like now he's just like Everyone knows him as like the the uh, creepy, depressing German guy who does the narration, right? Yeah. But but he he earned his right to be that creepy <laughs> German guy. He made a lot of good movies, and this is just a good reminder that back in the seventies, you know, when he was just starting out, he really made some groundbreaking things. This is a very interesting um, film, so I highly recommend it. I hope someday I can earn the right to be the creepy Norwegian guy. Cause right now <laughs> I haven't earned it, but I'm still that thing. And it's like sometimes not, you know, a walk in the park. No, no. Yeah. I've, I've seen you do it and it's just, it's more uh, sad than anything. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of sad, should we move on to our next film? Yes, please. Can, can we, can we talk about this? Yes. All right. Well, I will do a little intro. We both um, watched the same movie that was randomly chosen last episode. And that movie was Gods of Egypt 
directed by Alex Proyas in 2016, tells the story of a great change in the pantheon of the Egyptian gods, who in this film live and walk amongst mortals, even though they were twice their size. Evil god Set has taken over and enslaved humanity, and the only ones who can stop him are a plucky mortal thief and the blind and drunk god Horus. We follow their journey as they run in place in front of green screens, traveling from one CGI set to another. This film makes a bold choice to have no Egyptian actors and a predominantly white cast, proving that the only color this filmmakers see is gold. So much gold. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. I'm glad you brought up the CGI sets because about probably 20 or 30 minutes into this movie, I had to pause and look at IMDb to see if there were any filming locations. And I found <laughs> an amazing tidbit because it is clear this is shockingly, distractingly bad CGI at times. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like you could tell uh, the lighting, the perspective is off on a lot of these things. You can tell that this is green screen. Even if you watch movies now, like, you know, half of an Avengers movie is in green screen, but it looks good. This looks really bad. It was like, was this his first time using green screen? Did nobody know how to maneuver the camera? And the yeah, was the budget, the production me. house was not one of the big ones, probably. Well, the budget for this movie was $140 million. And I was like, where did that money go? I almost did a spit take when you said that. $140 million. I had the same reaction when I looked at the IMDb page for this film. I was like, what? And there were shooting live. I don't know what scenes they shot live, but there are locations across Australia. They made the decision to shoot in Australia instead of Egypt because they deemed it safer which i would question because it seems like everything in australia is trying to kill you including gods of egypt (laughs) yes yes good point i didn't read somewhere that they got a big uh tax break or something from australia i'm sure that's something to do with it yeah um so totally wild that they actually chose to shoot this on location despite about 99 percent of it I don't know. Did, maybe it was establishing shots or something they shot in Australia. Mm. Uh, really wild. I liked how this movie started with a voiceover that was somehow more confusing than just not having it in. Oh, yeah, that voiceover is completely unnecessary. And it, it basically says, hey, there's Egyptians and they are exactly like humans, but bigger with gold blood. And some yeah, other confusing yes. things that, like, we didn't really need to know. Mm-hmm. Right, um, right. And that's the other thing that was really jarring to me. The for- forced perspective. Not only was the CGI bad, but they definitely tried to do some forced perspective. This mm-hmm. took place 15 years after The Lord of the Rings. And you would think it was the first time forced perspective was used to this yeah. show. They this did not awesome. quite get it right. Sometimes they were like twice the size of the human characters. And sometimes they were only like slightly larger. Um, I would even argue that a movie like Willow, which came out in the eighties and this was 2016, I think had better force perspective than this movie. Right, so I right. really <laughs> just did not understand what they were doing. Mm. And neither did they apparently. 
<laughs> I, I I agree. I think somewhere something happened with the uh, the crew behind the scenes were not up to the grand vision of Alex Proyas. And I'm not saying his vision was amazing, but I think the thing I liked about the movie was that there was interesting things on screen that he was trying to show the designs of, of the, the, of the sets and the locations and the, uh, the, I, you know, the choreography of the, some of the battles were, were interesting. They just did not come across that way. Sure. I guess kind of maybe. <laughs> like for what is worth, some wild I did stuff. like some of the visual style that they were going for. I just don't mm-hmm. think that they accomplished whatever they were aiming for, you know, mm-hmm. in the glimpses that you saw of like, Oh, it's cool. They're actually almost a sci-fi super advanced civilization a la maybe Stargate, you know, mm-hmm. um, with this cool metal look, almost like, they were transformers sometimes. Right. Uh, right. But I just didn't think they pulled it off. It just didn't look good. I was kind of getting into the, uh, the kind of B movie vibe of it for a lot of it. Just the, the imagination that went into some of the ideas, like for example, the Chadwick Boseman's character, um, who is some sort of scholar who wants to learn all the knowledge in the world. And when they find him on their adventure, he has created, you know, uh, an endless supply of himself just to continue learning everything because he's the only one they trust. Just like the, the visual idea was fun. I, I enjoyed that. And there are a few little things like that that were just cool, cool, imaginative ideas. Yeah. What did you think of the story in general? Uh, the story in general was, um, not offensive, not bad, just kind of blah. Yeah. I, I guess this is based on some real Egyptian mythology. Um, Mm -hmm. like this is a story that happens in Egyptian mythology. I guess the main issue I had with it is that the movie's kind of poorly explained and it's almost told as if we're expected to be intimately familiar with the Egyptian gods and their powers and their domains. Mm-hmm. And I felt like everybody kind of has these abilities when the film needs them to, but okay. otherwise they're just not there. And maybe it would make sense if we knew that Horus was the God with this power or right. um, Hathor or whatever her name was. I can't remember mm-hmm. the name of the kind of love interest, the love goddess. Yeah. Um, Hathor kind of all of a sudden can do this thing and you're like, Oh, well that's useful. But where was that earlier? Right. Right. And why is that? What's this? She has this bracelet and I guess if she takes it off, she's stolen by demons or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you're like, but, but why, what is this? And I felt like that most of the movie just confused about not that the plot is deep or intricate, but it was almost like watching a video game it felt like everything was a side quest and the stakes kept changing. It wasn't just a straight, um, if we want to get into the plot a little bit, you know, Horace avenging his father's murder at the hands of his uncle slash his father's brother set, Mm -hmm. you know, it changed from that to, Oh, now I have to save the world to now I have to do this. And to do that, we have to go get this thing, which I don't know what this thing is because I don't know anything about Egyptian mythology. 
Yeah, there were multiple times when he's like, all right, we have to go do this now. We have to go to the Sphinx. We have to go find Toth. You know, we have to do this. And it was felt like just, yeah, it was just stuff to do to get to the climax, which you knew was going to be him against his uncle. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I was team set. <laughs> well, when you have B-movie king Gerard Butler at the helm of the villain, I mean, how, what's not to like? <laughs> yeah, like Leonidas in Egypt. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I felt like everyone in this movie was always acting just completely in their own self-interest. Horace was not a likable person, despite his dad getting murdered. He and, wasn't, but that was his arc. You know, they tried to bring him back at the end. But it was at the very end. He makes no attempt to become a better person and or slash god until right, right. the last 10 seconds of the movie <laughs> i'm not yeah, saying it was elegantly to... done but i think that's what they were going for yeah. he starts <laughs> as like a drunkard party boy um his yep. dad is the king of the gods and he's the the most awesome king ever apparently yeah like a really really nice guy and then set is you know his brother and they even say in the beginning of the movie so his dad is the king and then set is just kind of kicked to the side and set to rule over this barren wasteland desert. Right. And so I wonder why. Yeah. And the explanation we get from Ra played by Jeffrey Rush <laughs> <right>. <laughs> is, well, you know, the King's test was to see if he could give up power after having this really posh, awesome life. And your test was to not be a dick when I was a dick to you your whole life. And I'm like, <laughs> well, yeah, fuck you. Set is yeah. set is right. <laughs> he was terrible I, once he became king, but he's the only character whose motivations you really understood, except for the human who was really annoying. Yeah, that, that human. Beck. Um, Beck was just like that, like bland Caucasian pretty boy that you see in, in movies that you, you know, he does his cool things and, and doesn't leave an imprint on you. That's kind of how I felt about him. Yeah. I would argue that Beck has the most unearned powers or whatever you want to say of anyone in the movie, because he's just a guy and his introduction is him stealing this necklace for his girlfriend. Right. But he's not even good at it. He like makes hard <laughs> eye contact with a shopkeeper and runs through a crowd and just kind of escapes. Yes. And then like 10 minutes later, he's doing these superhuman feats of agility and kind of like bumbling his way through very athletically in a way yeah, that there's these, no indication these... that he has any special powers. And then all of a sudden he does. Mm -hmm. He's just, uh, yeah, they needed someone to be the mortal hero to compete with these gods. So they just made him have be really cool at what he does. Yeah. But yeah it was I not earned. I don't understand why filmmakers feel like we need to have a human proxy. Mm -hmm. um, in these kinds of movies, like it, it's one thing to show how humanity suffers maybe at the hands of a set, but we don't right. need one character like the Shia LaBeouf character in Transformers. No one cares right, about right. Sandwich Wiki. We want to see fighting robots. We want to see these gods tearing each other apart and doing these really cool things. Yeah. I don't need a human along who, by all rights, should have died about 50 times. It's a Godzilla problem. All those movies have the same issue. Yeah, yeah there's the scene yeah, just... where the... Um, 
I, I, they never even say anybody's name. I feel like I only know half these characters' names because they were in the subtitles, which right. I had on and was too lazy to turn off. <laughs> so there was the one with like the bullhead, and these three guys attack Horus, and oh, one of yes, them is yes. literally holding him over a waterfall by his neck for like five minutes for no <laughs> reason. Like, there's mm-hmm. no reason that he wouldn't just kill him or throw him off the waterfall, except he's the main character of the movie. Yeah, you gotta not let him die so quickly. So we'll yeah, just drag and out they're this there to scene. kill Horus, and he just, like, watches his two boys get straight up murdered by Horus. Yeah. And then even at that point, does not throw him off the, the waterfall to fight Horus one-on-one for some reason, just like, is like, oh, I guess I'll let you down. And Set <laughs> does the same thing at the end of the movie where they're fighting on top of this, like, 2,000 two cubit tall, however tall that is, tower. Right. And it's like, just, just throw him. I don't understand why. I mean, I understand why as outside of the movie, mm-hmm. because he's the main character, but that he of literally course. has plot armor. Yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah, plot armor. That's a good uh, term to, for this, for sure. Um, what did you think of Nicolaj Coster Waldo's performance? I'm sure I mangled his name. Jamie Lannister as Horace. It's okay. He's Dutch. Nobody can say those names. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think anybody was good in this movie. Bland. I thought he was bland. I The only person I enjoyed watching was Gerard Butler because he was just acting like himself in a modern movie yeah. even though he was supposed to be ancient egypt he was still kind of had like that the mannerisms of some some like modern villain <laughs> which i don't know kind of entertained me yeah yeah uh um yeah and then and then of course the the representation was very odd especially for 2016 i mean this is not like it's from the 80s or something yeah literally everybody's all the main characters are white guys <laughs> i had completely forgotten about the outrage over this movie until i read about it and then mm. it kind of clicked and i was like that's why i remember the name of this movie yeah yeah because nobody went to see this they they had to lose a boatload of money i'm i'm i don't remember if it made money internationally but i remember <sighs> looking at the numbers over here and it was way, way underperformed. Right. Right. So, um, overall, what, what would you rate this one? Um, at 1.5. Okay. I'm at a two. So I guess the good, the good news for me is that I own it now. So that's nice. (laughs) You do own it. I apologize. I went to stream it for free and it was no longer on uh, Tubi where it was supposed to be. So I also, I had to rent it, but at least I got to rent it in 4k, which was nice to see all that horrible CGI in 4k. It was on on prime and it was like a dollar or two more to buy it. And I was like, well, if I enjoy it, I'll own it forever now. Yeah. And now you regret it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I can watch it again. You win some, you lose some, as they say. So do you want to go into what you were inspired to watch based on gods of Egypt? So this was really hard for me because Mm. the things this inspired me to watch was something that dealt with Egyptian mythology in a cool and or respectful way. The problem is I couldn't find anything that I hadn't seen already. Right. 
You know, I would have loved to have been able to watch Stargate or The Mummy or The Mummy Returns even. Um, mm. But I couldn't find anything like that. So instead, I decided to torture myself with another Alex Proyas movie. Oh. And after watching Gods of Egypt, I was shocked to learn that he had directed The Crow, which I have not seen in a good 20 years, but I loved as a kid when I was yeah. you know, 16 or whatever. It's uh, definitely a cool teenager movie. movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I watched another one of his films. I watched Dark City, which came out in 1998. Okay. And I immediately laughed out loud because it again starts with a semi-confusing voiceover that tells <laughs> you that there is a group of aliens whose world is dying, but they also have the power to change reality. So I'm not sure exactly how their world is dying, if they can change reality, but neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> it opens with a man who wakes up at a murder scene in a world that he can't seem to make sense of. He has some kind of amnesia and he's going around this world, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, this race of beings has the power to control humans and change their physical surroundings. And somehow the main character has also gained this ability. Uh, the main character is played by Rufus Sewell, who was the evil knight. I think is probably in a knight's tale. Yes. His that's most true. well-known role. <laughs> um, every time I see him on screen, I just want to say you have been weighed, measured and found wanting. <laughs> uh, although not in this movie i actually kind of enjoyed this movie it's a film noir that's yeah. got elements of a lot of movies many of which came after um it's kind of a cool mashup of i thought the matrix the truman show kind of this blade runner film noir -y kind of thing and inception uh because the aliens are able to change their physical surroundings. And the way they do that is by a lot of really cool visual shots of like these buildings appearing out of nowhere or staircases. Mm -hmm. There's like a cool shot of a staircase as it kind of extends in this, um, like vertigo inducing kind of shot. There were a lot of cool visuals in this movie and it just felt like this claustrophobic perpetual night scape kind of city where everything was happening and I don't want to get too much into the plot because I thought it was interesting and well done. Yeah, that I, I agree. I watched this fairly recently, not for the first time, but just a, in a long time. And I was surprised how much of the matrix I felt in this movie and, and came out the same year or like even a year before, I think. Yeah. It was about a year before. Yeah. And yeah, it just really, the the concept's interesting, but the style is what really got to me. That film noir, sci-fi, the the CGI, you know, feels like 1998, but it still works in this world. And uh, really dark, <laughs> dark and interesting. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought Jennifer Connelly was really good as kind of this mm. femme fatale character. Yep, yep. Uh, who was the cop? I can't remember... He was very recognizable to me, but I don't remember. William Hurt. Ah, yeah, William Hurt. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland as this scientist who is helping these alien beings, but also kind of on the side of the protagonist. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was weird. I would say, though, that 
the actors in this also were kind of wooden. And I'm just wondering how much of that is Alex Proyas's style and what he's asking of actors, because yeah, it was very reminiscent the acting style of Gods of Egypt and completely different movies tonally and just in the genre that I would place these in. So I do wonder if that's kind of what he's looking for. That's interesting. I think it, it works in this uh, dark city world because it's not like a real world and the people aren't really you know kind of who they say they are so that vibe feels right but yeah yeah, in gods of in gods of egypt it just feels like everyone's not being lazy (laughs) in their acting yeah yeah Hmm. well cool i'm glad you watched that one that's the one that makes me appreciate alex proyas and one of the reasons i wanted to watch gods of egypt is because i you know i liked his movies thought this would be interesting yeah, I would say um, good movie. It does kind of the, the, the end climax was almost anticlimactic because um, it's basically a stare off between <laughs> Rufus Sewell's character and the evil, the head of these evil, strange aliens Yes, uh, with some that was really kind of where the visual effects fell apart a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um but everything up until like that actual final fight kind of thing that needs to happen was was really interesting and well done. I uh, let me see what what I put on my letterbox. I gave it a three point five. Yeah, I think that's a fair rating. I would give it a three three point five. Cool. All right. And I own that one too now because, you know, it was just a dollar more to buy it. And I really, this time I did kind of have to fight myself on whether or not I wanted to, to support Alex Proyas after making me buy Gods of Egypt. <laughs> I also own Dark City. I own a disc. So you're in good company. What did you watch? Well, I... As I said earlier, one of my favorite things of Gods of Egypt was Gerard Butler. B-movie king Gerard Butler. I love when he kind of just gives it his all and hams up a role. And he's always entertaining. Every movie I see him in. And he always picks like goofy B-movies that aren't too serious, but he plays them just in the right way. So I just wanted to, after Gods of Egypt, I wanted to see more of that. So I saw Law Abiding Citizen from 2009. Oh. From the director of The Fate of the Furious. <laughs> this is a movie starring Jamie Foxx and Gerard Butler and some other cool people, Colin Meany, Bruce McGill. Anyway, it's a uh, In the first in the opening scene, Gerard Butler is this super nice family man who after a home invasion is nearly killed but has to watch his wife and daughter be killed as well. Um, you know, a year or two later, he's, uh, you know, uh, the perpetrators of this crime have gone to trial and Jamie Foxx is the lawyer who's gunning for a district attorney, the lawyer who's prosecuting these people. And Jamie Foxx realizes that, you know, because of some snafu with the evidence these people will probably walk free. So he kind of gets one to testify against the other and makes like a plea deal so that the, the really evil one only gets five years in prison. 
And Gerard Butler is like, no, let's go to trial. Let's go to trial. And Jamie Foxx is like, too late. Deal's done. So, of course, that doesn't satisfy Gerard Butler. So he spends the next 10 years planning an elaborate revenge against everybody involved with this. The two killers, the Justice Department, Jamie Foxx. And his revenge is hilarious and brutal. (laughs) And I was on his side the entire time I was watching this movie, hoping that all his plans would work. Jamie Foxx, though, is kind of the main character where I think you're supposed to be rooting for him to stop Gerard Butler and figure out what's going on. But I just wanted his revenge to work. (laughs) So it's, it's a fun movie. Uh, it's surprisingly R-rated. There's a lot of uh, violence and gore and things. And it kind of has a dark Taken-like vibe to it, where it's like Gerard Butler will stop at nothing to do his uh, revenge. And it turns out he's a really smart guy, and he has a background that may be useful in situations like this. But it's just fun to watch him ham it up and watch Jamie Foxx be his the straight guy in this elaborate uh, revenge plot. So I enjoyed it. Yeah, I saw this years and years ago. I think it was one of the first things I watched when I got Netflix. Uh, I remember mm. it was available on there. That and uh, another Gerard Butler movie that I haven't seen since then, which I'd be curious to watch again, Gamer, which is oh, kind yeah. of... Uh, live action, you know, MMO call of duty esque gladiatorial combat. Um, I remember really enjoying this and I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there some question as to whether or not Gerard Butler is actually doing it? Um, I remember there's a scene where they arrest him because they suspect him, but then things keep happening while he's in jail there is some uh, question of is he does he have an accomplice? That's really what it comes down to, right? And uh, I won't I won't reveal the answer to that. But I, I remember the reveal of what was what was happening being like really cool and really yeah. awesome. Yeah, um, and I I remember also having that same feeling of I want this guy to succeed. These people should <laughs> not be out, and it yes. was very brutal i remember uh the one scene where he is essentially torturing the one yep. guy and you know exactly what he does to this uh human being and it's revealed that he basically paralyzes him and um but the guy still feels the pain of everything he does to him yep. which was just it's almost saw movie like if it was very saw and while the, the scene is basically Gerard Butler, like explaining to this guy what he's going to do. He's like, I gave you a paralyzer. I'm going to give you adrenaline now. So you feel everything even more. I'm going to cut off your eyelids so you can see everything. And I'm like, wow, he's probably just going to shoot this guy in the head, make him scared and then kill him. I'm like, Nope, Nope. He's not, he's, he's going to do it. <laughs> like this was like, there was a lot of stuff he did to this guy. You don't see it of course, but you kind of get the, you see the start of it. And I was like, man, this is, so it this was, is the type uh, of movie we're watching. <laughs> it made me pretty uncomfortable. I'm not going to lie. I remember watching it and being like, Oh, I, I want him to win, but I do not like this. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just looked at F Gary Gray, the director of this film, and I have to tell you, I'm very excited for something that has been announced. 
Uh, there was, I think, a little-known cartoon in the 80s that he is now apparently attached to direct <laughs> called Mask, Mobile Armored Strike Command. Which, command with a K. Command with a K because, you know, you had to fit it into Mask, uh, which I remember being like vehicles inside of vehicles or something like that. I loved the toys, and I'm really excited. I hope that happens soon. Um. Yeah, I mean, it looks like it's got a cast and everything, so good for him. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I've seen, I've only seen the two movies, Fate of Furious and Law Abiding Citizen, both of which I liked. I should check out Friday, it's supposed to be a comedy classic, and Straight Out of oh, Compton, he, is supposed to be good. He did Friday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the Italian job. Huh. So far, a solid director. We shall I see really liked Friday. Goes. I mean, I was 15 at the time, but. Right. It was the movie right, well. that I believe brought Chris Tucker to everyone's attention, and I can't thank it enough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I thank uh, F. Gary Gray for letting Gerard Butler ham it up, because that's always fun. All right. I guess we should pick a movie for next episode. What do you think? I'm ready. I've got right, my D20 is, right here. We've got a fresh selection of titles. It is your turn to roll. All right. And here we go. I rolled a six. Ooh, Detox. Detox looks great. Does it? Yeah. Detox 2002 by Jim Gillespie, starring Sylvester Stallone. Oh, my God. It's got to be good. <laughs> A disgraced FBI agent with a drinking problem joins nine other troubled law enforcement officers at an isolated detox clinic in the wilds of Wyoming. And then bad stuff happened. <laughs> bad stuff happens to them. Wow, what a cast. Yeah. Sylvester Stallone, Charles S. Dutton, Chris Christopherson. Maybe he'll play some guitar. Who knows? Stephen Robert Lang. Patrick's Tom Berenger. Uh, Tom Berenger. A guy named Rothgar. How could it be bad? <laughs> All right. Well, this is uh, this is exciting. This is exciting. It looks um, like it could be fun. I'm excited. Yeah. All right. Well, we will reconvene next week or next episode to watch that in two weeks' time. All right, Eric. Anything uh, else you want to talk about before we bring this episode to a close? I'm I'm ready to close up shop. All right. Well, everyone. You can follow along with my movie watching on Letterboxd. I'm on there as Long Monkey. You can check out my other projects at proleary.com. Eric, would you like to plug anything? No. All right. Well, then, everyone. I'm unpluggable. Have a good night and sweet dreams. <laughs>